0: There's a tiny little area of Missouri that we affectionately call the Boot Hill. This very strange shape was developed over the great land expansion where various territories were recast multiple times reestablishing the boundaries. In this Boot Hill, you'll find that a small sliver comes in contact with other states including Arkansas, Tennessee and Kentucky. There on a sharp hairpin curve in the Mississippi River a small riverfront outpost was created known as New Madrid, Missouri. But in 1811, the largest American earthquake in history occurred there. It was utter chaos, with explosions, cracks, miles and miles long, and enough force that some say the Mississippi River was forced to flow backwards. But it didn't stop there. It continued for months, in fact, a year, with multiple earthquakes as if the demons of hell were playing with the natives and settlers in some sadistic game of dice rolls that cost thousands their lives. If that weren't bad enough, another earthquake of equal or greater magnitude is continuing to build. Join us tonight if you dare as we discuss the New Madrid fault line and earthquakes, then and now, a true tale of horror. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway.
1: Now, I think when we talk about this, we're going to have, we're going to try to put this together in in historical context to some degree. We're also going to try to, historically, it's at a time where things weren't very well documented, let's be honest. Yes. And in It was now,
0: uncivilized, right at the border of civilization. Yeah, I even mean, even now,
1: when we go back, we're going to talk about the measurements of these quakes, but we don't know exactly what they were. We're just going to estimate that based on the evidence that we had, but- I, I, like we were talking about before we started here, I always thought that there was one earthquake on the new Madrid fault line. And that was the big one uh, that everybody talks about. Historically speaking, I there didn't were realize three major, there were three big earthquakes to this day. They are still in the top 10 strongest earthquakes to hit America.
0: We just had one documented October
1: yeah. 18th. We I mean, just a few days ago, but these were three of the largest. And I think, if you look at, what is it? I think if you look at the contiguous United States east of the Rockies, I think these are the three strongest ever. Mm-hmm. And then in that time frame, you have hundreds and thousands of other earthquakes that are happening almost continuously. So that area a must have time been bomb. chaotic at the time. Now, we're going to go through and we're going to talk about uh, measurements of these earthquakes. We're going to give you the measurement value. That is going to be based on what we now call the Moment Magnitude Scale, the MMS. This is a, a measure of an earthquake's magnitude based on its seismic moment, and this is a more accurate measure than what the old Richter scale was. We always used to measure them in the Richter scale. This Remember that actually, back in the school days. Yeah, this is actually a more, uh, I would say, accurate measurement.
0: Let me set the course here before you dive in. The New Madrid earthquakes were the largest in all American history. They occurred in the central Mississippi Valley, but were felt as far away as New York City, Boston,
1: Montreal, and Washington, D.C. You can add New Orleans in there as well. They, they experienced some shaking from these. President James Madison and his wife Dolly felt them in the White House, and church bells rang in Boston.
0: Can you imagine? From, it's insane. And literally the lowest area of Missouri being felt that far.
1: Now, part of that is because of the geological structure of, of the stone Whereas I believe in California, when they have similar earthquakes, it's not like the stone is not as conductive to the, the vibration. Yeah, the softness of it. I, I, I don't know like how that, to explain it. Uh, yeah, I'm no geologist. Yeah, me neither. But because of the bedrock foundation of, of our part of the country and in the, east, the, the eastern part of the country, it conducts the, the earthquake tremors much further. As a matter of fact, I remember, oh, late 80s, early 90s, I remember sitting in my grandma's house in, Ho- in Ohio. And we were watching TV, and I looked over, and there was a vase sitting on the table, and this vase is rocking just ever so gently. And I look around, and everything on the shelves is just moving just a little bit. And I'm like, and what? that's when you recognize
0: this, this is not paranormal. Well, there's my, more than one thing. moving. <laughs> my mom was
1: born and raised in California. Ah. And my mom looked around the room, and then she looked at my grandma. And she goes, "We just had an earthquake." And, and she I'm she like, spotted "Whatever." That. Yeah, she knew what that was. Within moments, it came across the news that there was an earthquake. In the New Madrid vault zone. And
0: Bill's like, one day I'm going to move closer yeah. to there. <laughs>
1: move close. I've always lived in the same spot. I was visiting Ohio.
0: But the good thing is, I guess, where you could say, if you drew a line, the folks to the west are going to be much safer. Unfortunately, north, south, and to the east coast of New Madrid, you're going to feel this. You did back in 1811. And depending on when the next one comes, you're definitely going to be feeling it again. And yeah. the other side is, when that happened, again, that was part of the, the expansion of the United States. Oh, this was
1: like the, the edge of the frontier. Missouri was Native American a place
0: Indians, I mean, everything. So, it was very sparsely populated. Yeah. And guess Missouri what? Missouri was still a territory. There's major cities and stuff now. Yeah. So, the destruction is going to be much worse. So, just wanted to kind of set that little foundation so we can crumble it up with our earthquake story.
1: So, kind of to to summarize the events and then we can dig deeper into the the specifics of what happened. But a series of intense intraplate earthquakes began on December 16th. That day the first quake happened and it measured a 7.2 to 8.2 on the the moment magnitude scale with an epicenter in what is now northeast Arkansas. Now like Eric said the New Madrid Seismic Zone is an area of high earthquake risk that runs from northeastern Arkansas to northwestern Tennessee. Southeastern Missouri to southwestern Kentucky. So you got four states there. Yep. Um, you got a big ch- chunk of the Mississippi River. And now, like you said, lots of cities and towns and developed areas. Now, this first quake caused light damage to man-made structures due to the sparse population of the area. There wasn't much there. Nope. Boat captains on the Mississippi stated that the, the, that the quake caused the river to fill with debris as the tree-covered banks collapsed into the river. Literally, they said floating forests. Yep. Now, that was followed by a 7.4 aftershock on the same day, same epicenter, six hours later. Now, they said on that day, it was estimated that residents in an area of 232,000 square miles experienced very strong shaking, and residents in an area of 965,000 square miles experienced shaking intense enough to be frightening. There was a thing think about that area. I mean, it's mind-boggling, the amount of space, the amount of area that was affected by these earthquakes. Now. From around that time through to the February time frame, there were also additional quakes. Um, It's estimated that there were hundreds of moderate quakes from 5.0 to 6.5 and thousands of smaller ones, 4.0 to 5.0 in that time frame. And I saw estimates of somewhere up to 6,000 potential earthquakes in this time. So this area continued to shake even after, you know, these, these three huge earthquakes anyway. This area was like in nonstop flux for you, that whole time you
0: have to again stop and think about this these people and again i'm I'm not trying to be derogatory but a lot of these people were uneducated even they had no idea they're out there already living on literally the the cliff the brink of civilization you've had these bigger earthquakes already you saw entire force just flush down into the the waters of the yeah. mississippi giant pits open up and swallow forests and homes and here comes another one and another one you, at, I mean you, you couldn't sleep yeah. you, there, was, there would be no rest Essentially you would be continuous earthquakes absolutely
1: living in horror now for this particular batch of earthquakes there were two more extremely powerful quakes in the in the that time frame January 23rd 1812 another quake happens this one's between 7.0 8.0 And its epicenter is the Missouri Boot Hill. The local area was struck with ground warping, ejections, fissuring, severe landslides, and and more caving of stream banks. And then finally, you have what was essentially the big one, if you want to call it that. And this is the one I think that a lot of people think of when they think of this particular. This is
0: the New Madrid earthquake.
1: February 7th, 1812. This quake measured 7.4 to 8.6. And that's a a doozy.
0: That's a doozy.
1: Let's take a moment to think about earthquakes was, it's like a scale of 10, isn't it? Like a, a, a you have an earthquake, I, th- I think ten. A 1.0, well, but like a 1.0, a 2.0 is 10 times worse than a 1. Oh, okay, yeah. A 3.0 is 10 times, so you're getting up 8.6. I mean, it's some not the, a
0: minor progression. Yeah, it's, again, this is
1: potentially one of the largest, most damaging earthquakes ever recorded in history. 8.6 is insane. I don't know that there's ever been higher than an 8.6. Well, I was trying
0: to think. The San Francisco, I believe, was like a seven point nine or something. Are, yeah, that, I can't.
1: I can't think of a nine in recorded history. And
0: again, we're going off of old records. We don't know that this, yeah. this could have been higher.
1: So on this eight point six quake on February seventh, there are the epicenter is New Madrid, Missouri, and New Madrid itself is basically destroyed at this point in time. They said no building structures
0: survived yeah. at all.
1: St. Louis had many houses severely damaged and chimneys toppled. An uplift along a segment of the fault line created temporary waterfalls on the Mississippi River uh, at Kentucky Bend and also caused waves to flow upstream. So this is your reversal of the Mississippi here because the ground raised so much, it forced the Mississippi backward.
0: Yeah. And can you imagine these just waterfall drops just appear? Yeah. You're a captain that's been out here, you know, doing this. Also, hey, it may have been a six-foot waterfall, eight-foot, we don't really know, but.
1: Now, this also caused the creation of Real Foot Lake that's now in Lake County, Tennessee, when it obstructed numerous streams in the area and basically naturally dammed them and then just filled up, so created this lake. You're
0: welcome from Missouri for giving <laughs> you guys that natural, man, or
1: natural non-man-made lake. But again, these three quakes remain the most powerful earthquakes to hit the contiguous United States east of the Rocky Mountains in recorded history. Now, you have to remember, you know, along the, the West Coast, the Ring of Fire... There's some pretty powerful quakes up in that in, in that area from, what is it? From, I think from California all the way up through Alaska. Right. One of the worst earthquakes ever happened in Alaska, but still these are insane. Like some of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded. Uh, like like they were they happened in the central Mississippi Valley, and caused minor structural damage in cities as far away as Cincinnati. That's
0: mind boggling. I mean, I've taken that trip. I've
1: driven that. It
0: takes hours and
1: hours yeah. and hours.
0: But yeah, they felt it within moments.
1: So in in all of recorded history, no other earthquakes lasted so long or produced as much damage. And the primary three are on the list of America's strongest earthquakes. December 16th, 1811, magnitude 8.1. January 23rd, 1812, magnitude 7.8. And February 7th, 1812, magnitude 8.8. Again, I know I said 8.6 earlier, but this is... Again, these numbers are going to fluctuate a little bit because no
0: one really knows. The fact is, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, I mean,
1: this region (laughs) got rocked hard by three major earthquakes and then thousands of smaller earthquakes.
0: Now, as Bill has said, and I I agreed, it's very hard to go back and find true, accurate information. But I went through and I have found with the Missouri archives and museums, there were several people who kept diaries. Uh, Riverboat captains kept journals. And I wanted to share a few things that were out of that. That's, that's as close firsthand information as obviously we can get when you're, when you're going back to 1811, 1812 time frame. The first one I thought was interesting, strange animal behavior. People reported strange behavior by animals just before the earthquakes hit. They were nervous and excited. It was written that domestic animals became wild and wild animals became tame.
1: Snakes came out of hibernation. Snakes came out
0: of the ground in hibernation, middle of the winter. Flocks of ducks and geese landed in town near people. To the natives, now they saw this as the creatures trying to warn them of things to come. And boy, did they hit that on on the head.
1: Now, scientifically speaking, I believe there's no, scientists won't, won't say there's a correlation between animal behavior and, and earthquakes. However, if you look at any recorded earthquake of any substantial size, there is always strange behavior in animals ahead of time, even in California, even in Alaska, when those massive earthquakes are, are you know, within hours, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. The animals in the region do tend to start behaving strangely. Yeah, they so, probably
0: don't understand what's going on either, but I, something I would say, just ain't right. Yeah.
1: In this case, the natives definitely probably had like, okay, something's getting ready to happen. Part of their you beliefs. Got the animals acting strangely. They're trying to warn us. Yeah.
0: Now, others found this is just kind of odd and curious, stating that in some instances, wild geese and ducks would literally try to follow citizens inside their home like <laughs> they they were trying to get shelter. Maybe not that the house would have been the best shelter, but, uh, you know, they would drop down out of the skies, migratory patterns, whatever, land in the middle of the town and just start following people like you know, it, just crazy now after these earthquakes obviously these people are they're landlocked i mean for the most part you got the mississippi is the major travel and we had talked about floating forests, waterfalls water flowing backwards the mississippi then you had yeah. a few wagon trails and stuff
1: i have here for you know you drowned the inhabitants of an entire indian village when the when the, the river flowed backwards wiped out the entire tribe it devastated thousands of acres of forest that had never been touched. Uh, and created two temporary waterfalls. I mean, it's insane. The Mississippi River, I mean, if you've crossed the Mississippi River, that's a huge river.
0: A lot of water. But traveling along these fault lines and crevices, these people, life went on. I mean, while earthquakes were literally occurring probably daily, they still had things to try to accomplish. They had people to try to go get first aid to, try to help. Well, they would Um, make
1: improvised bridges by falling trees across these crevices so they could get back and forth.
0: As the general area experienced more than 2,000 earthquakes in a five-month period, people discovered the most of the crevice openings uh, up during the earthquake ran from a north to a south. Now, I mentioned that earlier. If you lie to the west, if you drew a line, that seemed to be safe. So it kind of follows what we now have I-44, Interstate I-44, built on is actually on part of that exact fault line. So think about that for a bit.
1: Strange little tidbit. I learned this when I was in middle school, I think. If you're driving on I-44 and you're traveling, this would be between the signs for, oh, it, you're, you're pretty close to Rolla at this point. You're definitely past Jerome. It may be past one of the other places, but there's a place where there's a cut in the roadway. You know you know how they blast through the hills. Blast through the rock. There's actually a visible, dormant fault line. If you're driving through, you can see where the rock's. And you got to watch for it because, again, you're driving 70 miles an hour yeah. down the interstate. You
0: blink and you miss
1: it. But you can actually look at the rocks and you can see where they line up. And then there's a spot where there's a shift. And they actually jump. The, the, the lines of strata actually separate by a good three inches or so. Hmm. And I was told, I was told by a middle school science teacher, that that is evidence of a dormant fault line that used to be right there.
0: Proof in the pudding right there. But as these fault lines they noticed would open up north to south when the earth began moving, They would chop down trees to Bill's point in an east to west direction and hold on to them using or basically fall several trees and make uh, bridges to cross these crevices. There were missing people who most likely were literally swallowed up by the earth. Some earthquake fissures were as long as five miles. And truthfully, it is unknown exactly how many people died during this period of time. Well, Bill had mentioned the entire Indian tribe there was documentations that, like, you know, a 10-acre area just fell through in a giant sinkhole.
1: Obviously, know. because of, of records and such of the time, the, the number of lives lost during these earthquakes will forever be unknown. We'll never know how many people died directly because of these earthquakes. And obviously, you know, if, if this were to happen today, it would be even worse, which we'll talk about later. One of the, one of the things I, I found interesting the world's largest sand boil was mm-hmm. created by these earthquakes. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what sand boil is, it's basically when the pressure of the ground is such that it just blows sand—well, sand and water—I think it is.
0: Talking again of that soft soil, yeah. the you know the ground—it just
1: blows it up into the sky like a volcano, if you will. And there is a the world's largest sand boil. It is still visible in satellite imagery of, of parts of the, the country down there. 1.4 miles
0: long and 136 acres yeah. in extent in the boot hill of missouri
1: and there were multiples of these in a line they all followed like a fault line uh or or maybe one of those you know crevices that didn't completely open up but instead smashed together i saw a video one time where it was sort of recreating what it would have been like to experience it and i mean I think they said it is it, as far as like 50-something feet in the air. and
0: I can imagine it like a sandblaster, yeah. literally, if anything or anybody was nearby. But yeah, that, there's an area there, and I have never heard of this small town, but it says it's about eight miles west of, I want to say it's Haiti, Missouri, H-A-Y-T-I. Yeah, Haiti. That's what I
1: would have said, yes.
0: Uh, and locals there call it The Beach. Yeah. <laughs> affectionately named The Beach. Now along with these sand boils and what can be described as quicksand pits because some of the sand had so much air underneath of it, literally if you would walk across it, it would be like quicksand, not the traditional quicksand. I think uh, we said
1: in another podcast, you know, I always, I always thought quicksand would be a much bigger problem, but apparently it could it's be. It's coming <laughs> back around. There were small pellets up to golf ball size made
0: of tar that are found inside these sand boils and fissures. They're, they're basically petroleum that has been uh, solidified and made into these nodules. Now, can you imagine if the sand blast doesn't get you of this bellowing volcano of sand, you've got these golf ball sizes of, of like petroleum hot oil coming up yeah. out of the earth. That, this, there's no good place to be around here.
1: Well, well a couple of other things that happened to earthquake phenomenon, which, which happened with a lot of earthquakes, you had what they call seismoluminescence. Yes. Or earthquake light, yes, which is basically lights flashing up from the ground, and they say With in the this quartz. case from the quartz being squeezed. Yes, apparently that possibly generates heat as well because a lot of the water that came out of the ground at this point was lukewarm; it was heated. So whether that was the friction of the 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 land shifting or or from the 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 quartz being squeezed, and then in, in addition to that, you also had distant thunder and sounds of loud explosions which I'm assuming is just the ground itself the, reacting to these earthquakes.
0: Now, the strange sparkling that you were talking about, the luminescence, that phenomenon, they they described it as uh, dancing lights, almost like a willow wisp style, blues, greens, and yellows. And that's, as you said, is the quartz is being compacted and the effects with heat and water and, and all of that. Again, go back to that time and imagine Native, uh, Native American Indians, uh, other people that are just you know, pioneers, you've went through l- months of hell and now you see these giant fissures, these crevices, and now there's these weird little sparkling like fireflies, fireworks. Well, you've got these You'd lights- be thinking, what in the then, bleep is going on?
1: Yeah, and then these sounds of explosions and, and, and thunder and all that. And apparently, like what was it? they had a earthquake smog, I guess. Which, which was, was extremely hard to breathe in. Small particles being blown into the air, like the, the sand blasts and stuff like that. Apparently it made the sky so dark that lamps wouldn't even help illuminate it. They said it a lamp so would dark. maybe go a foot to two foot. The, the air smelled bad, it was hard to breathe. I mean it was it was crazy.
0: Great place for a vacation home.
1: <laughs> so obviously there there are some firsthand accounts of, of the things that happened. You know, we, we we were starting to settle it. Like we said, it was wild frontier at that time. wasn't even the state of Missouri yet. But, you know, there were people that, that lived through it, and they documented it. And I have here um, some quotes taken from some people. The first is John Bradbury, a fellow of the Linnaean Society, and he was on the Mississippi on the night of December 15th,
0: 1811. Scary, scary place to be.
1: His story, quote, After supper, we went to sleep as usual. About 10 o'clock. And in the night, I was awakened by the most tremendous noise, accompanied by an agitation of the boat so violent that it appeared in danger of upsetting. I could distinctly see the river as if agitated by a storm, and although the noise was inconceivably loud and terrific, I could distinctly hear the crash of falling trees and the screaming of the wild fowl on the river, but found that the boat was still safe at her moorings. By the time we could get to our fire, which was on a large flag in the stern of the boat, the shock had ceased. But immediately the perpendicular banks, both above and below us, began to fall into the river in such vast masses as nearly to sink our boat by the swell they occasioned. At daylight we had counted 27 shocks. Oof. And then there's an Eliza Bryan in New Madrid, territory of Missouri. On the 16th of December, 1811, about 2 o'clock a.m., we were visited by a violent shock of an earthquake accompanied by a very awful noise resembling loud but distant thunder but more hoarse and vibrating, which was followed in a few minutes by the complete saturation of the atmosphere with sulfurous vapor causing total darkness. The screams of the affrighted inhabitants running to and fro, not knowing where to go or what to do, the cries of the fowls and beasts of every species, the cracking of trees falling and the roaring of the Mississippi, the current of which was retrograde for a few minutes, owing as is supposed to an in- interruption of its bed, formed a, a scene truly horrible. And then John Reynolds, fourth governor of Illinois, in his biography mentioned in this particular one of these earthquakes. And he has his, uh, I think he may have his date wrong because he quotes on November 16th. So I don't know if there were some pre-shirt cursors or whatnot. But on the night of 16th, November 1811, an earthquake occurred that produced great consternation among the people. The center of the violence was in New Madrid, Missouri, but the whole valley of the Mississippi was violently agitated. Our family all were sleeping in a log cabin, and my father leaped out of bed, crying aloud, The Indians are on the house! (laughs) We laughed at the mistake of my father, but soon found out it was worse than the Indians. Not one in the family knew at the time it was an earthquake. The next morning, another shock made us acquainted with it, so we decided it was an earthquake. The cattle came running home, bellowing with fear, and all animals were terribly alarmed on the occasion. Our house cracked and quivered, so we were fearful it would fall to the ground. In the American Bottom, many chimneys were thrown down, and the church bell in Cahokia sounded by the agitation of the building. It is said that the shock of an earthquake was felt in Kaskaskia in 1804, but I did not perceive it. The shocks continued for years in Illinois, and some have experienced it this this year, 1855. Wow! And we know that we've had continuous earthquakes sure. in the region. Sure. Sure. Um, like you said, we we, we the recently October 18th. Here, yeah. I
0: actually stumbled across one. So. I've got a, another steamboat story, and actually I tried to find who wrote the article. I wanted to give him credit, but all I can say was I actually found this on the City of New Madrid's webpage, so I, I will at least give that much credit. This is uh, the first steamboat travel on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers took place during the New Madrid earthquakes. The New uh, Orleans set out from Pittsburgh on October twentieth, 1811, bound for New Orleans. Captain Nicholas Roosevelt had brought along his young wife, their 2-year-old daughter and a labrador dog. 10 days after leaving Pittsburgh, his wife Lydia gave birth to a son in Louisville, Kentucky. Imagine, you're making this kind of truck, your pregnant wife <laughs> delivers while you're, you know, going down the river. Now they waited for a while for her to recover and for the water to rise prior to crossing the dangerous waters and a coral reef at the falls of Ohio. Now, on the night before the day of the earthquake, December 16th, the steamboat was anchored near Owensboro, Kentucky. That's about 200 miles east of New Madrid, Missouri. Their dog, Tiger, insisted on staying in the cabin with them instead of sleeping on the deck of the ship. Without realizing it, they were headed straight towards the epicenter of the greatest earthquake in American history. Their steamboat, intended to be... An advertisement for steam travel trying to promote this was thought instead to be the cause of the earthquake by many who saw it. At Henderson, Kentucky, where no chimneys were left standing, they stopped to visit their friends, the painter John James Audubon and his wife Lucy. Floating in the middle of the Ohio River, they were protected from the earthquake tremors, shaking the land, but not from the hazards of falling trees, disappearing islands, collapsing riverbanks after entering indian territory on december 18th they were chased by indians along the shore who figured their fire canoe as they called it had caused the earthquake but they managed to escape capture by outrunning them on the ship they even had a small cabin fire that night which they managed to put out i'm sure that helped the indians and put them at rest Thousands of trees were floating on the waters of the Mississippi as they approached New Madrid on December nineteenth, three days after the initial earthquake. They found that the town of New Madrid had been totally destroyed. They didn't dare to stop and pick up a few survivors for fear of being overrun, and they were without supplies already. Most alarming was the fact that they had not seen a boat ascending the river in three days. They saw wrecked and abandoned boats all along the shores. It was undoubtedly a miracle they had survived and kept going. They tied up at one island, and the island sank during the night. Their dog, Tiger, alerted them of oncoming tremors. Yet again, here's an animal telling them before it happens. On December 22nd, they encountered the British naturalist, John Bradbury, on a boat at the mouth of the St. Francis River, who told them the town of Big Prairie was gone. That was just to the south of new madrid it had totally erased it from
1: from the map and that was the gentleman whose quote that i i had where he was on the boat
0: they arrived in natchitoches mississippi on december 30th and celebrated their first marriage aboard the steamboat on december 31st when the steamboat engineer married lydia's maid they arrived at new orleans on january 10th 1812 safe and sound after traveling one thousand nine hundred miles from Pittsburgh on the first steamboat to travel the Western ways, into a bit of a rough storm, I might add.
1: Did you imagine being on the river when that happened? Oh my gosh! Especially like you tie to an island, and, and by the next morning it disappears. Or or like you know, Bradbury said, just watching the, the shoreline collapse and it just tree. I mean, they, where they, do you go? Which they, way do you run? Yeah, you know, yeah, you you have
0: nowhere to go. And then you're there on the water, and as we all know, I mean, stuff falling into the water, displaces the water, yeah. the water levels. you got waterfalls that are opening up, sinking islands. Yeah, you just cross your fingers and toes. And <laughs> Another story that I had come from, uh, also got this off of the website uh, for New Madrid. And this is an event that uh, I thought was interesting because it tied to the Native American Indians. Uh, not only this, but as we had mentioned in the podcast previously, the forewarning of animals. This has to do with Tecumseh's Comet and the Battle of Tippecanoe. The earthquakes were preceded by the appearance of a great comet, which was visible around the globe for 17 months, and it was at its brightest during these New Madrid earthquakes. The comet, with an orbit of 3,065 years, was last seen during the time of Ramses II in Egypt in 1811-1812, It was called Tecumseh's Comet, or Napoleon's Comet in Europe. Tecumseh was a Shawnee Indian leader whose name meant shooting star, or he who walks across the sky. He was given this name at birth, a great orator, a storyteller, and a military leader. Tecumseh organized a confederation of Indian tribes to oppose the takeover of 3 million acres of Indian land, which were obtained by the Treaty of Fort Wayne in 1809. His brother, a religious leader called the Prophet, had gained fame when he foretold the total eclipse of the sun on June 16, 1806. They had learned about it in advance from a team of visiting astronomers. During this time, the governor of the Indiana Territory, William Henry Harrison, worried about the Prophet's popularity and how well his stories had taken off. They had challenged him to produce a miracle. Now, after the day of the Black Sun, the total eclipse, the brothers had no trouble attracting followers. A Black Sun was said to predict the future war. So, on September 17, 1811, there was another solar eclipse, which again was predicted by the Prophet. The brothers' center of operations was at Prophetstown, located near the junction of Wabash and the Tippecanoe Rivers in northern Indiana. Tecumseh was traveling and recruiting warriors among the southeastern tribes when Governor Harrison attacked Prophetstown with over 1,000 men on November 6, 1811, a preemptive strike by the United States which marked the beginning of Tecumseh's war. And on December 16th, when the earthquakes began, Tecumseh was at the Shawnee and Delaware Indian villages near Cape Girardeau, 50 miles north of the epicenter of New Madrid. The earthquakes continued as he traveled back to Prophetstown, arriving there in February of 1812. Tecumseh's followers lost the Battle of Tippecanoe, but they continued to fight as allies of the British during the War of 1812 between the United States and Great Britain. Tecumseh was killed in battle in Canada in 1813. He is honored as one of the greatest of American Indian leaders, both in the United States and in Canada, where he is considered a national hero. So not only do we have all this earthquake and fog and fissures opening up and the Mississippi River running backwards and islands sinking, animals trying to warn us, you have Tecumseh and his brother, the prophet, this Indian war really starting to rage, and then these predictions, and this meteor that happens in key preciseness with the New Madrid earthquakes.
1: Now, like you said, Tecumseh is is greatly respected. In Ohio, they actually have a an amphitheater where they do a a, a performance uh, in honor of Tecumseh, and it, it details a lot of these things and talks about his brother and his gift of prophecy and things like that. You know, my grandmother made sure that we got exposed to things like that and, and history and science and things. So, yeah, I mean, I had heard of Tecumseh, I knew how important he was, I didn't know his, you know, how closely related he was to this until we started reading about, you know, the the, the earthquakes.
0: Well, and I—I I guess I was ignorant. I, I, I swear I did not sleep through history in, in school. But, but I don't think they taught us a lot of—I don't think they taught us a lot of this type of stuff. But I didn't realize Indians were almost fortune, are not fortune tellers, but uh, prophecies. I didn't know that they had really got into that as much. But well, I mean, there, here's one great example: history is written
1: by the victor, right? That's very and, true. The Indians didn't come out on the the best side of the, a lot of those. So, but yeah, he is, he's very revered still. So we've talked about what did happen. The history. The the tragedy in 1811, 1812, the absolute disaster that it was. But what if it happened today? What if, what if today was the day?
0: Well, I will go out on a limb and I'm going to say, it's not a matter of if it will happen, it's when it will happen. So
1: current estimates made on geological observations, looking at the strata, looking at the, the ground, the bedrock and all that, looking at the fault lines, they estimate that earthquakes of that magnitude are going to happen roughly every 500 years, that about 500 years before that, 500 years before that, they, they can kind of say, okay, we know that there were at least two significant events that we can look at on a geological you know, mm-hmm. basis. So basically every 500 years, which means we should be okay for a while. Now, the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, has projected in the next 50 years there's a 7 to 10% chance for a magnitude 7.5 to 8.0, which would be a big earthquake. That's a big one. And a 28 to 46% chance for a magnitude 6.0 to 7.0. Which is still big. Still a significant earthquake. Now, what would happen if, if earthquakes of that magnitude happened today? Well, first of all, the loss of life and the property damage is almost unimaginable. There's about forty five million people that live in the area that would be most impacted. You know, that's a lot more than there was when it was frontier land and barely inhabited. Some major city complexes now. So in addition to the thousands of deaths you would experience, you would also have the bridge crossings on the Mississippi that would fall. What I heard it described as is you would essentially split the country in half at the Mississippi. Not, you know, literally, but figuratively, you wouldn't be able to cross any of the bridges. Right. Now I know in recent history they recently put a new bridge over the Mississippi at St. Louis and it was built by going into the bedrock. So the idea is that one is supposed to be stable enough to survive an earthquake. There's also one down by oh, Memphis I think it is where they spent uh, a big chunk of money to redo the infrastructure and to bring that bridge up to code to where it would still survive an earthquake. At impact. least
0: there's a few people out there kind of possibly thinking of the what if.
1: Well, and again, how strong an earthquake is it going to withstand? Yeah. So,
0: and just because it's standing, will it still be able to facilitate the amount of yeah. traffic and weight yeah. that would need to go through on well, those like, few again, bridges? Because you're
1: going, to, yeah, like you said, you're going to have most bridges unusable, so you're going to have to redirect to these other places. Uh, major highways could buckle, which I think goes without saying.
0: I-44, kiss your knee goodbye.
1: Oil and gas pipelines could break, causing nationwide disruptions.
0: Not only adding to water pollution, so yeah. if, if you survive the initial, now your water, groundwater is all polluted.
1: Nearly 850 thousand people could be displaced from their homes in up to eight different states, and of course, with roads and bridges compromised, emergency aid might be cut off to places that need it the most. Basically, no landlocked. Way to, get to people, unless you had helicopters. Yeah. It's estimated that there could be nearly $300 billion in damage. And that's I think an that estimated, is minuscule. that could be low Yeah, side. I think
0: that would be minuscule.
1: And here's another number that I agree with that I think is on low side. An estimated 87,000 damaged buildings. Yeah. And I think that would be low end. Yeah. My understanding is that New Madrid, again, would essentially be wiped off the map. You know, we don't build to earthquake code in this part of the country. Uh, because again, the the worst earthquakes we ever experienced were, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. All, all of these areas, as
0: you said, much more highly populated and many, many major cities in that vicinity. If you think about the area that was felt, which again, just kind of draw a line to the West and we will knock that out, but all the way up to Canada and all the way down to Florida, essentially, they said that some of these cities will I'll just say, be erased. Well, not have damage, but erased. One, one, one
1: show I watched that talked about the New Madrid earthquake and then brought it up to what if it happened today? I mean, they essentially wrote off St. Louis. St. Louis. There's a lot of big buildings in St. Louis that are not built to earthquake code.
0: Nashville,
1: Indianapolis, Dallas,
0: Atlanta, Houston, Washington, possibly Memphis, Memphis Philadelphia, Charlotte, Jacksonville, maybe even walt disney
1: orlando now see some of those you're you're at the far edge i mean maybe we're gonna ring some bells and crack a foundation
0: may not totally wipe those off
1: but But, they're gonna have they're gonna have some damage st louis memphis cape Girardeau. i mean those cities are right there now here's one for you we did a
0: podcast on disney you're at a walt disney in florida riding a ride (laughs) when the new madrid goes off and you're thinking, wow, I got way more than I paid <laughs> for on this
1: ride. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, I mean, you're, you're encompassing an area, like they said, that people could be lose their homes in up to an eight-state area. So I'm assuming that's, you know, Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas. Possibly the Carolinas, you know, Virginia. Illinois, and,
0: yep, you know. Regardless of the initial damage, you know, as we said, due to the underground gas, oil, power lines buried deep beneath your surface we all forget about that stuff we just take it for granted the effects will slowly leak out poison the ground the water explosions dangerous fumes for i'm positive months if not years
1: oh i mean yeah
0: and now you may be thinking well that's why i bought an extra 24 pack of water <laughs> think about the wildlife that is drinking the poisoned streams you're going to have deer and wildlife dying decay This is not a good place. Some geographic specialists firmly believe due to the upheaval and shifting of the plates and the earth, the ocean waters most likely will cover most of the area to the south. To a point, I actually saw a map showing where Louisiana, parts of Mississippi and Alabama, and even part of Arkansas may be oceanfront property.
1: But, I mean, okay, I could see that through just climate change. I, I did not see that particular map attached to the earthquake deal, but but that's, again, I mean, I would think for that to happen, we would have to talk about a much more spectacular earthquake than, than hopefully anything that would ever happen.
0: Let us hope.
1: Let us hope. I, again, I mean, the, the, some of the most devastating earthquakes in recorded history, three of them happened. You know, right here in good old Missouri.
0: I think if you look at the map, you know, like I said, to the, to the west, we're good. But if you go too far west, then you get into the earthquake. So if you're living in the band of the center area of the United <laughs> States, something may kill you. But hopefully it won't be an earthquake.
1: Interesting tidbit. Based on structural analysis during an, an eight during a magnitude 7-8 earthquake, the gateway arch is estimated to shift as much as a foot and a half. In either direction. Not much. I don't know that it's going to survive that.
0: I have been up in the arch. I drug my wife there. She said never, ever there again. There is
1: no way on, in heaven or hell you're going to get me to do this. I
0: won't even say it was a windy day. There was a little bit of a breeze, but I am going to tell you, when you're that high up and you're leaning against the glass windows looking out, you can feel that thing shift, and that's what wow. I would call a calm day. <laughs> My wife's like, no. no. Actually, we were up in St. Louis just a couple months ago, and it's like, "Ah, man, it's been like 15 years since we did the St. Louis Arch. You want to do it? No. 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 no.
1: Hell no. I don't need to do that. (laughs) I am not a heights guy. There's a bridge. I may have talked about this. It crosses the Mississippi down in New Orleans. And uh, as you approach this bridge, I mean, stairway to heaven. is. is, I mean, it just goes, it goes, and it goes. And uh, it's like, it's like four lanes of traffic on either side or something. It's just huge. It's, it's unimaginable. It is just unbelievable. If you've never seen it, I mean, I, I'm not going to describe it and do it justice. But as you approach it, now, mind you, mouth of the Mississippi. The Mississippi is plenty wide at right. any given point. Right, right. You get to the mouth of the Mississippi, you're talking uh, uh, crazy wide. And I white-knuckled the <laughs> steering wheel to cross said bridge to get to our hotel. And I remember thinking as we pulled in for the night, God, I never want to do that again, <laughs> knowing full well that to get home, you've got to do I, that I've again. Do that again. And uh, no, as as luck would have it, the the where our, our when we left on our cruise, the port was on the other side of the bridge. So I only had just the time that it took me to like eight hours of sleep, get up in the morning, get dressed, and then go back over this bridge, which just is terrifying. Peachy. Because like I said, it just keeps going up and up. No, it, you know, a lot of bridges, you you start on one side, you can see the other side. No, you don't see the other side of the bridge till you get to the like the top of the arc, and then you're like, oh, Your man. Your ride
0: is halfway at this
1: point. <laughs> the, the only time it was worse than that was when we went to Nags Head, uh, North Carolina.
0: Yes, been there.
1: And you've got to take that bridge yes. that goes out, and it, it's just nothing but ocean for what seems like miles. Uh, that bridge just goes on forever, and I don't like it. And then there's a spot where you do go kind of up, and I remember watching seagulls. The wind was so strong that day; the seagulls looked like they were sitting still in the air. And again, I'm white knuckling because I'm I am not a heights guy. But now imagine that bridge, eight point oh shock on the oh
0: my gosh
1: the new Madrid fault line. That bridge might not even be safe.
0: I'm imagining like a an old fashioned popcorn popper with the cars being the popcorn kernels. I mean. Yeah, there was, a, there was a small little tiny bridge, and and thank heavens, they have closed it now, but uh, my dad's family is from northern Iowa. And I don't remember exactly where this was, but this was a cable bridge, a swinging, true swinging bridge. I was 16, just got my license, and dad, I think, probably about the same time frame, had to drive over that bridge. So it was kind of like a, a call of of rights. He's like, "Okay, you got your driver's license, you know. You're going to be a real man. You're going <laughs> to drive across this bridge." I white knuckles doesn't explain it. That bridge again on a calm day, and it, I would say day. I think we crossed it at night, which made <laughs> it horribly worse. This thing would just swing back and forth just by design. That's what it was on steel cables. And if I'm not mistaken, there were areas of it where it was it had supports underneath of it, but it was wood planks. So like, is your car just,
1: there's there's a similar bridge not too far from here. You may be familiar with, Mm. but, uh, no, um, I've always wondered what would happen if there was an earthquake, you know, how stable would my house be, you know, things like that. And to, and to know that, you know, it could be one of the worst recorded earthquakes in history if, if, you know, the timing just happens to be that bad.
0: Yeah. I don't care how bad your day's been. If that happens, when that happens. Your day's gonna get a lot worse. I don't know how how to sugarcoat that, but well, we hope we've given you something to think about, <laughs> and hopefully, there's not a uh, mass migratory of population moving from well, Missouri. If you, but if you uh, start
1: seeing the animals behave weirdly, all the signs are there. Yeah, you know. It's probably too late. <laughs> Stand in a doorway. Stand in a doorway. Yes, uh, duck and cover. Right? Isn't that what they do? Yep. They used to do in California. But
0: we hope that you have enjoyed the tales of the history and the not-so-glamorous future of the New Madrid Fault Lines and Earthquakes. Thanks for listening. Sleep well.
1: January turn... <laughs> turning what? <laughs> January 23rd, 18- 18... turning the page. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We'd like to give a shout-out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the
1: Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio.
0: I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final
1: edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully
0: as much as we do. Thank you very much.